strange stories of peculiar people and extraordinary events throughout history. This is Notorious Narratives. Welcome to Notorious Narratives. I'm Jen. And I'm Robin. And tonight I'm going to talk to you about a story that's a little on the sadder side. Oh, great. But first, I'm going to talk to you about something a little bit more fun. Okay. Um, I'm just going to remind everyone about our Patreon. If you are listening and enjoying the episodes and want to find a way to support us, but maybe aren't the kind of person who wants to wear a t-shirt or <laughs> buy a mug. But those are still available, though. They're, while that. they're available at our merch store all the time, you know, you can always donate to our Patreon. Uh, for $1, you get episodes a couple of days early. And then we have a $3 tier and a $5 tier. And throughout the year, we send special gifts, stickers, Mm -hmm. tote bag, and we have something that involves fire coming up quite soon. And so if you're interested, uh, go to patreon.com slash notorious narratives, where you can become a patron. And, you know, we have extra episodes every month. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of different content Mm -hmm. um, if you're interested. And you can also go to notoriousnarratives.com and it brings you to our link tree that brings you to our patreon our shopify and where all of our episodes are available so i'm going to start by telling a story my mother was one of seven siblings she lived with her mommy and daddy in a little shack along the mississippi river they were very poor and my mother was eight years old at the time that the limousine pulled up the children would play outside they were outside playing six of them the day that the limousine pulled up and somehow lured them all into the car and took them to the orphanage. Oh, fuck. There, they were separated from their siblings and they were adopted out across the country. My mother and her twin sister were taken to Philadelphia and adopted by a couple. They were told, we're your new mommy and daddy now. My mother said, no, you're not. I have a mommy and daddy. My mother and her twin were eight years old at the time, and Georgia Tan told their adoptive parents that they were only six years old. So imagine being eight years old and being told one day, no, you're six, and now you have a new mommy and daddy. So my mother never got over the trauma of being taken away from her parents and of being separated from her siblings. She never forgot them. She always longed for her biological family. She never accepted the fact that she was now a part of another family. She lived a very sad life, and even though she went on to have five children of her own, she was a very unhappy person, and she would just never get over the trauma of being taken away from her parents and thrown into that situation that was not her choice at all. So that's a story told by Peggy Konitzer, and it's the story of her mother, whose name was Norma Sue. And after being kidnapped... She was sold along with her sister to that couple in Philadelphia. I feel like there's a lot of ways that I could tell you this story. There were a lot of people who were affected, manipulated, and changed. Their lives ruined. This is the story of the Tennessee Children's Home Society and the woman at the helm, Georgia Tan. So I guess I'll start with her. Beulah George Tan was born July 18th of 1891. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Yes, ma'am. Beulah. Beulah. Her name is Beulah George Tan. If you are from the South or if you know people from the South, Beulah is not an, a weird name, especially in the 50s. Oh, it's the 50s. Cool. So, okay. A lot of this takes place in the 40s and 50s. She was born in 1891. Oh, Beulah. Got it. 
Makes so. sense now. <laughs> so she's a 40-year-old in the 40s what am and 50s. I walking into? <laughs> yeah. Got it. So Beulah George Tan was born July 18th, 1891 in Philadelphia, Mississippi. Her father, Judge George Tan, was reportedly a very domineering man. He also had aspirations that his daughter would become a concert pianist. And beginning at age five, he immersed her in piano lessons that continued into adulthood. Her middle name was his name, George? Yep. And so, like, therefore, her nickname was Georgia. Yeah. She just kind of started to go by Georgia. Mm -hmm. Her childhood home was known to be a popular neighborhood gathering spot, where, I imagine, little Georgia was paraded out to play piano for all her father's friends. I imagine them pinching her cheeks... While they're drinking scotch. Do they know and how hot cigarettes. that hurts? Everyone yeah. in the world, please stop pinching cheeks. It actually hurts. But that it's literally just an imagination that I have, like a little imagineering of little Georgia. She did well in school and attended Martha Washington College in Abingdon, Virginia. Good for her. Graduating with a degree in music in 1913 and took courses in social work at Columbia University in New York for two summers. Yeah, girl. However, she despised playing the piano and instead desired to become a lawyer, just as her father had been. And under his tutelage, she read the law and passed the state bar exam in Mississippi. However, her father did not want her to practice law because it was considered to be an unusual career for women. I thought maybe she like changed her major in Columbia, you know? I'm like, nah, she just went there, I think, and took some classes. Which is awesome because during this time and this age... Women going to university was mm-hmm. slim to none. And she's in fucking Columbia. She's from a fancy family. Good for her. She is from a fancy family. You know what? Money is a big factor in getting to college. But you know what? Opportunities. <laughs> you, your hard work and dedication is the other aspect of it. Oh, don't, don't, don't like this person. Oh, I'm not supposed to like her? Oh, no, no. Don't get that twisted. Just. Oh, I'm just like, oh, educated woman. Cool. Mm. In the 1900s. Yes. And some use their education for good. Oh, shit. Hi, everybody. I'm Katie Segal. And I'm Kurt Sutter. And welcome to our new podcast called Pi, People, Influences, and Experiences. Yes, it's sort of the uh, get to know you at a deeper level. The who, what, when, where, and why you are rather than what it is you do. Absolutely. We're not going to talk too much about what people do. We just want to know about their families, where they come from, you know, what shapes their parenting if they have kids, what shapes their marriages if they're married. We just want to be really nosy. We want to get in there. A deep dive into nature and nurture. And we started it because there are a lot of people that we don't know that we are curious about. Right. And I have no friends, so for me, it's, you know... Try to get them out of the house. Listen to it on whatever you listen to. (laughs) Podcasts on? Yeah, podcast homecasts. Your, 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 your podcasting apparatus. Watch it on the YouTube. He's aging himself. With no apparent design to get married or have children, she availed herself to one of the few careers available to an unmarried woman of her time, and that was social work. Eventually, Tan found employment at the Mississippi Children's Home Society. And being the charitable woman that she was, in 1922, Tan adopted an infant. She named her June. Georgia was soon fired from the Mississippi Children's Home Society after some questionable child placements. 
she had begun placing poor children in adoptive homes without the consent of their birth parents. It was also around the same time that she began working closely with a woman named Anne Atwood, who came to work at the Mississippi Children's Home there with her um, as a house mother. She was about eight years younger than Georgia and was somehow connected with her family. They knew one another. The two women had a close relationship. And in 1924, after Georgia was fired, she, along with Anne Atwood, moved to Memphis. With June? Yes, with the baby. And upon arriving in Memphis, the two women set up a household. Georgia, Anne, June, and Anne had an infant son at the time named Jack. So there's two women and two children in a household. At one time, the cohabitation of two financially independent women was referred to as a Boston marriage and was considered socially acceptable. But it was beginning to be viewed as a homosexual behavior. But Tan and Atwood continued to hide the nature of their relationship. And I'm telling you this just so you kind of understand the person we're dealing with. I don't in any way want to shame her or her lifestyle. Um, I'm sure there were plenty of women who had companions, companions, mm -hmm. homosexual relationships, lesbian relationships, wives, and cohabitated and had perfectly normal and healthy households. But this woman is not one of those women. Georgia was a master manipulator. She was an opportunist, a kidnapper, a child trafficker, and probably a murderer. When she arrived in Memphis, she was hired as the executive secretary at the Shelby County branch of the Tennessee Children's Home Society. The society was the largest in the state and had branches in Jackson, Knoxville, and Chattanooga. She was intelligent and well-educated and quickly established herself as the foremost agent for adoptions, not only in Tennessee, but in the entire United States. Her tenacity and foresight and seemingly limitless passion for infants of a tender age helped to transform adoption into a respectable cause, even chic within wealthier circles. Oh, I hate that. Infants of a tender age? Yeah, so babies, right? So, like, she's oh. trying to promote the idea that people should be adopting because there are so many children that are going to, you know, bad homes and are unwanted. Yeah, and but, but I so she's out there and, I mean, don't get hung up on it. Her reputation skyrocketed, placing her on the national stage where organizations around the country sought her advice on all aspects of adoption and child rearing. She spoke at conferences in New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles and rubbed elbows with celebrities and advised First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt on adoption matters, and was invited to the presidential inauguration of Harry Truman. These agencies, such as the Tennessee Children's Home Society, were strictly to be run as non-profit, mm -hmm. as they were supposed to be charitable organizations. Oh, okay. Also, in Tennessee, the state law stated that while children must be placed in homes of appropriate applicants, uh -huh. the agency could only charge for services. So this was a, a Tennessee state law. So therefore, adoptions that took place from the Tennessee Children's Home Society to applicants within Tennessee mm -hmm. cost $7. What was she charging? But ever the opportunist, Georgia found a way around the law. She set up out-of-state adoptions that were far more profitable. Soon, she launched her adoption racket. To drum up business, Tan placed advertisements 
aimed at potential adoptive parents in newspapers, especially in major metropolitan areas. So she, she basically ad- like sold children in her area to other areas around the United States? Mm-hmm. Illegally. In the years between 1940 and 1950, the agency placed 3,000 children in the states Shut of New York and California. Up. Mostly to wealthy applicants. For these adoptions, she charged $700 plus travel and filing expenses, all of which were wildly inflated. She can get like $1,000 off of one child. There are stories of $5,000, $10,000, $100,000. Based on the $7 that, that she-, she could have gotten in Tennessee. She also charged exorbitant prices for background checks on each of the couples, of course. She never did them. Of course not. But for those who were desperate for a child and who had the means to utilize her services, no price was too high. Especially for a child that was made to order. One that looked like they could be a member of the family. Business was booming. Two women acted specifically as shepherds. Alma Walton and Regina Warner both worked for Tan. And every three weeks they would make a trip with four to six babies in tow. Walton to California, Warner to New York. Once there, they would meet with prospective parents in a rented hotel room, each one carrying a check for $700, made out directly to Georgia Tan. All of her profits were kept in a bank account under a false corporation name. She placed children with Joan Crawford. She also placed Ric Flair in his adoptive home, among thousands of others. I'm sorry. Yes, Mommy Dearest. Mm -hmm. Yes, you're right. You got it. Pick it up what I'm putting down. So anyone who could pay could have a kid. Didn't matter who you were. Didn't matter what kind of person you were. Didn't matter what you were going to do with the child once they were there. This is where the limousine comes in. I'm like, if you're saying the limousine came and picked someone up, it is our time. <laughs> Holy fuck. All right. And that is just <clears throat> one of the ways. Like, there are is a lot more that we're going to get into of her Rick methods. Flair? Yeah. Seriously? Yeah. So under her watch, the Tennessee Children's Home has become a for-profit outfit that is placing very few children in Tennessee homes. But a premium was placed on these out-of-state adoptions. And one might ask, how does she have so many children? I mean, what's that, like 12 a month, right? So if you're saying Mm -hmm. that they're taking four to six every three weeks, right? So let's just say three weeks and they take six. That's 12 children a month. Are there really 12 children a month going through one adoption agency that are the exact right age, right? And the exact right um, type of child because... These families want yeah, the I mean, child just, to look like them. Just think about like, it just seems like an absurd number, like too much, right? So while adoption for profit may be an idea that is abhorrent, we all know that it goes on and continues to go on and it has gone on in the past. But what makes this story really heartbreaking and what really makes Georgia a fucking monster is how she acquired these children. So we must remember that this is... Georgia Tan, well-respected, well-spoken, well-educated, the daughter of a judge. She's passed the bar exam. But apparently, in this process, the one thing that she's really acquired is a real elitist fucking mentality. And in that, she has developed an idea that the poor 
the single women, the divorced women, anyone who is less educated than her are people who are not deserving of being parents. They are not deserving of happiness, having children. And she looks at them as a ripe victim pool because white children with blonde hair and blue eyes commanded the highest prices. Tan continually increased her inventory of blondes through trickery, abduction, and blackmail. She preyed on unwed mothers, the poor, uneducated families, and she used these spotters. So she paid people all over the community to tell her if a young woman who was unmarried or who was divorced or who, you know, was living in squalid sort of situation, if they were pregnant so she could kind of keep an eye on them. She used nurses, welfare workers, deputy sheriffs, lawyers, and doctors. Nurses would tell single mothers that their babies had died at birth and that their bodies had been cremated. When in actuality, they had been taken and handed over to Tan for sale. Other mothers signed away their newborns while suffering from the effects of anesthesia. Welfare workers tricked parents into signing legal adoption documents that they didn't understand and dragged others into court to take away their youngest and cutest children. That's right, I said court. Just, she, she just, just she had her hand It goes to the top. Some children were even snatched from playgrounds, off sidewalks, church basements, and delivered directly to Tan to be sold. She used a variety of high-pressure tactics, legal action, and coercion to mislead parents, especially single mothers, into turning over their children under false pretenses. One victim, Alma Semple, described her as having an air of utter authority and that she was incredibly persuasive. So this woman, Alma Simple, her story is pretty easily found out there if, if you're interested. It's one of thousands of stories to be told. But this woman basically said that when she came at you, you felt like you didn't have a choice. And as someone who already feels pretty powerless in the world, a young single mother who is facing hardships, right? Like, it's not easy now. I can't imagine what it was like 1930s, 1940s Memphis, you know, and that she just shows up and the things that she says to you and the way that she talks to you, you just feel like there is no choice but to to give her your child. She also arranged the taking of children who were born to inmates at Tennessee mental institutions as well as prisons. To meet demand, though, she resorted to kidnapping. In some cases, single parents would drop their children off at nursery schools, only to be told the welfare agents had came and taken their children away. So they just took dropped them. them off at school for a normal day and then went to go pick them up and then weren't there? Yeah, they were gone. Oh. And... Oh, honey, I will fucking track you down. And they were told... Oh, my God. That, well, you know, your child is dirty and underfed. So we had to call the welfare agency. And so people would start to try to track mm-hmm. the children down within the welfare agency, right? Like they would, you know, start to go not to the proper that authorities. It's not that they're off somewhere else, but all records yeah. were destroyed. Yeah. In other cases, children would be taken away from families and placed in the orphanage 
because the family was experiencing an illness of a parent or unemployment, only to find out later that the orphanage had adopted them out and no record of the child was ever placed. So you could lose your job and somebody would come and take your child away. You could be sick in the hospital with pneumonia and somebody would come and take your child away, especially if they were cute and blonde. Tan was also documented as taking children born to unwed mothers at birth, claiming that the newborns required medical care. And later, when the mothers asked about the children, Tan and her accomplices would explain that the children had died when they had actually been placed in foster homes or adopted. So that story that I said before of Alma Simple, it was similar to that. Um, She was told, I believe, that her child had pneumonia and she was being taken to a specialist for care. And then they told her that her daughter died. But she just never felt that that was right. She was just like, she wasn't that sick. Mm -hmm. And she spent years of her life trying to track her daughter down and was never able to. Well, it was like the story that you told before on how um, women who gave birth and then they were told that the child was, was dead and they cremated immediately. Yeah. Whether it was, I mean, during this time, I really don't know if cesarean was ever like really a thing, but it was natural childbirth and you heard a baby cry. And then, and or, then, or maybe they didn't because they were under specific types of anesthesia. anesthesia to hide it. But also to just take the child away from you immediately and just cremate it and not have a moment with your child. That's when I would have been like, what do you mean? But I mean, I've, if you are, but these people were a drugged. young single mother uneducated 1940s Memphis that has one of the highest infant mortality rates in the country. You just think that was a normal practice. And you're told by doctors and you know, they would give women very intense anesthesia during childbirth during these days. So as you gave birth, you would kind of just, it was all a haze. And these are people you're supposed to trust. I know. Right. You're supposed to look at your doctor. I know. And trust that he's going to give you your baby. Or if something's happened, he's going to tell you. Mm-hmm. It's just the incredible violations of trust in authority that this woman and she perpetrates. her hand in every fucking aspect. Any possible way she could manipulate the system and people to get a child. She just paid people. She would. And she wasn't paying the parents directly, right? It's not like she's going and giving these poor people money. How much money did she give a doctor to lie? I mean, probably not all that much. Um, Because, you know, I think a lot of people were probably of the same belief as her and ran in the same social circles as her. These super, you know, upper middle class, wealthy people who think that these children are better off. With wealthy parents and that they're doing society a favor by taking the child away from a poor person. And I mean, so you also have to think that there are these incredibly cute children and the the best babies that are getting taken. And you would like to think that they're going to like Park Avenue, right? That they're going to these like homes in Philadelphia, LA. They're going to be with like stars. She's acting like entirely Adolf Hitler. But only blonde hair and blue eyes or blonde hair or whatever it is. Like she is, she's a fucking monster. Well, she's just supply meeting demand, right? So she's just like, that's what sells. She is 
the worst capitalist. Yeah. <laughs> um, but she didn't just sell children to loving homes. She sold many young boys off to farmers to be used as child labor. Oh, that's fucking great. She also sold young girls off to pedophiles. Sure. I mean, you know, just fucking check mark, check mark down the fucking list. I mean, so I'm just going to tell you, like, any possible, the worst, the worst of the worst. So she often placed two or three children with a couple at a time and had the children be on trial for their adoptive parents so they could choose the one they liked the best. And then the rest of them would be sent away. Many were returned. Were returned? Mm-hmm. And for the couples who kept the children and fell behind on their payments, Tan also was known to repossess the children. She destroyed all records of the children's adoptions and how they were processed and who they were processed through. And the society never conducted any background checks on anyone in any of the adopted homes. And as a result... Child Welfare League of America dropped the society from its list of qualifying institutions in 1941. But that didn't really stop things from continuing on because it turned into sort of like a back room, like secret, right? Yeah. So, so she became this kind of, you know, backdoor myth. So it's like, you know, a young woman gives birth to a stillborn. And they tell her she'll never be able to have children again. And the doctor says, you know, I know of a woman in Memphis who might be able to get you a baby. And it's this whole organization that's perpetrated all over the country. But also, the adoptive parents were not given information about where the children came from. All of the information about where these babies and children were coming from was completely fictionalized by her. They did not know that they had been stolen. They did not know that they had been kidnapped. Oh, I'm not blaming the, they did the not know, parents at all. Yeah, no, no. They did not know that they were coming from mental institutions, mm-hmm. that they were coming from prisons, um, that they were coming from, you know, women who thought that their babies were dead. Yeah. So... When an adoptive parent discovered that the information about their child wasn't correct and that the medical histories had been falsified and they actually came to her and they're like, hey, you know, like you said that this kid was this, but that's not the case. Uh, She would often threaten them and tell them that legal action could actually be presented against them because of their purchasing the children and that the fact that they were complaining about it was actually evidence that they were unfit parents and that they were actually going to have to surrender the children. So just in all accounts, she's just a manipulator. She's a fast talker. But how she got away with this for so long and how she managed to just, I mean, yeah, just really use every single yeah like i mean she's so tan's crimes were accomplished with the aid of the memphis family court system especially judge camille kelly who used her position of authority to sanction tan's actions and activities 
Tan would identify children as being from homes which could not provide for their care, and Kelly would push the matter through her dockets. Kelly also severed custody of divorced mothers, placing the children with Tan, uh, who then would arrange for them to be in homes better able to provide for them. Georgia Tan enjoyed a lavish lifestyle and was widely respected in the community, counting among her friends prominent families, politicians, and legislators. So because she had the lawyer knowledge background, she was able to manipulate and go around the system. Absolutely. And she, was and even she had a judge in her pocket. Yeah. She had lawyers in her pocket. She had lawyers. Many politicians. And doctors, nurses. Doctors, nurses, politicians. So she did all of this without impunity due to the cooperation of corrupt judges and lawyers who were on her payroll and would quash any lawsuit filed by a parent who had scraped together enough money to fight for the return of their child. And law enforcement looked the other way. Almost anything was possible thanks to Tan's most powerful benefactor, Boss Ed H. Crump a mayor of Memphis and a U.S. congressman whose corrupt political machine controlled not only Memphis, but much of Tennessee. So he had been the mayor of Memphis. So he was And then he was a congressman, but he was incredibly corrupt and everything around him was an incredibly corrupt institution. And she was just kind of part of that and, and was so there sort of during that part, it. also law enforcement and stuff like that. He came with oh a lot of help. God. But the saddest part of this story is not those children who were sold to homes in New York and L.A. They're not even the ones who were sold for child labor. But the ones who suffered most were those that were not desirable. Many were drugged and starved to death by Tan and her employees. But the saddest part of the story is not the children who were sold to families in New York or Los Angeles. It's not even the worst that they were sold into child labor on farms. But the children who suffered most were those who were not desirable. Those who had different medical conditions. Those who were not cute. They were drugged and starved by Tan and her employees. Or medical treatment was simply withheld. Several, perhaps hundred, died from neglect and were buried in unmarked graves without death certificates. It has been reported that Memphis had the highest child mortality rate in the country at that time, much of which was attributed to Tan's neglect. Even those who were desirable weren't safe. There are many later reports of children who were repeatedly assaulted by Tan and her employees, often strung up by their wrists while being punished or sexually molested or even murdered. At the time, the Tennessee Children's Home Society had no housing facilities, and those children who were awaiting placement did so in public facilities and foster homes. But in 1943, a wealthy businessman donated the mansion at 1556 Poplar Avenue to the society. The offices and intake rooms were put on the bottom floor, while the nurseries were upstairs. The all-female staff wore all-white nursing uniforms, despite the fact that they were mostly untrained. The children were frequently sedated, and those who were difficult to place were allowed to die of malnutrition. Tan regularly ignored doctors' recommendations for sick children, denying them care and medicine, 
which often led to preventable deaths from illnesses such as diarrhea. While some of her victims are known to be buried in Elmwood Cemetery in Memphis, other children were never accounted for, and the exact number of deceased children remains unknown, with estimates about 500 due to mistreatment. 500 children? 500 babies. While this behavior is certainly criminal by today's standards, these black market adoptions for profit were not illegal at the time. Certainly unethical, certainly immoral. Eventually, determined social workers and physicians convinced authorities of Tan's house of horrors and illegal sales. And in 1950, after continued reports of manipulation of legal documents, coercion, and selling of children for profit, Tennessee Governor Gordon Browning launched an investigation in which it was discovered that Tan and her cohorts had made over $1 million in profit. Georgia Tan died of uterine cancer just days before the charges were filed against her. Judge Kelly, the same, both escaping justice. They both died around the same time? Like, within months of one another. In 1950. The same fucking disease? I don't remember. They didn't say what. I don't know what the judge uh, died of, but they both. I was like, I'm like, that's too coincidence. They like, both died like, really close to one another. And I also feel very kill herself? coincidental. It is estimated that Tan kidnapped 5,000 children in the 26 years that she headed the Memphis 26 branch. 26 years? She fucking did that. 1924 to 1950. Most were in New York and California. Both states said that they would investigate the adoption and return those children to their homes. So many babies. But no investigations followed, and no children were ever returned. Over several decades, 19 of the children who died at the Tennessee Children's Home due to the abuse and neglect at the hands of Tan were buried in a 14-foot by 13-foot plot in the historic Elmwood Cemetery with no headstones. Tan bought the lot sometime in 1923. That's a year before she started working. Mm -hmm. So why is she buying this plot in the Mm -hmm. cemetery? This large plot. 14 by 13. That's a big big plot. And you just kind of wonder, like, why'd she buy such a big plot the year before she started working for another adoption agency? It feels premeditated. She's prepping herself. Right? It feels so gross. She recorded the children that were buried there by their first names only, Baby Estelle, Baby Joseph. And finally, in 2015, the cemetery raised $13,000 to erect a monument to their memory. It reads, In memory of the 19 children who finally rest here, unmarked, if not unknown, and of all the hundreds who died under the cold, hard hand of the Tennessee Children's Home Society. Their final resting place is unknown. Their final peace is a blessing. The hard lesson of their fate changed adoption, procedure, and law nationwide. So there in this cemetery in Memphis is this memorial to all the children who died there. Even though only 19 are known to be buried there, they know that many others died at the hands of this woman. And the stories are truly countless. And have reshaped the lives of many generations. I mean, think about the girl in the story. The limousine pulls up. She gets into it. Life is never the same. But it wasn't just her life that was changed, right? It's the lives of her children. Because now they're being raised by someone who was 
kidnapped and forced to go live somewhere else. And she doesn't know why, you know, this child had no choice, no decision, no voice. And having that kind of thing happen at such a young age, especially when you remember your home and your mother and your father, and you remember them loving you, how traumatic that must have been and how it changes the fabric of who she became. And that's just one of possibly thousands of stories. It changes their world forever, the way they'd make decisions, how they feel safe. Imagine she's your mom. She's not going to let you stay at people's houses. She's not going to let you like do anything. And so you think about like all of those kids who were taken, right? And they had kids and they all grew up in like kind of probably kind of a strange way. Mm -hmm. And how many people that affects. And then not just that, like all of the families that the children were stolen from, the women who cried, the women who mourned for children who didn't die, the, the parents who dropped their child off at daycare and came back and was never able to get that child back. Even if they were able to scrape together enough money to get a lawyer, mm-hmm. it was all fixed. It was all rigged all against them. There probably have to be tens of thousands of lives affected by this woman. You know? It's such a huge... Like, I can't imagine these people whose children were just gone one day. Just taken from them. And they have no way to fight. So, And they can't fight because police are involved. The mayor's involved. <laughs> it goes to the, the top. doctors are involved. The nurses are involved. Your lawyer is probably involved. Yeah. If you're interested in the story, there are a couple of books that I'll recommend. One is the fictionalized story based on these events. It's called Before We Were Yours by Lisa Wingate. And uh, the nonfiction follow-up, which has some of the true survivor stories in it, is called Before and After. And that is the story of Georgia Tan, the ultimate wolf in sheep's clothing. Just another notorious narrative. Fucking bitch. She is. It's awful. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, there are a couple of things that you can do to help us out. You can leave a positive review wherever you're listening now. You can also go to patreon.com forward slash notorious narratives, where you can access content that is exclusive for our patrons. And remember, keep it weird and never stop exploring.